And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Adam Brooks to the program today for the first of a two-part interview. Adam is a true world traveler, having been born in Canada, grew up in Britain, and worked all over Asia. He is a journalist and a novelist. He primarily served as a BBC correspondent for Beijing, Jakarta, and Washington, D.C. His novels are Night Heron, Spy Games, and The Spy's Daughter. Today we'll be discussing his new nonfiction title, Fragile Cargo, the World War II race to save the treasure of China's Forbidden City, which is published by Atria. Adam, you start off the book with a look at the daily life of Qianlong, the sixth emperor of the Qing dynasty, and that's in the mid-18th century. Now, the book is solidly based in the 20th century, so what kind of context are you providing here with us at the beginning? Well, I'm trying to let you know exactly what the role of the Forbidden City was to the emperors of China. And I'm trying to give you a sense of what lay inside the Forbidden City, this vast palace complex in the center of Peking that was home to the emperors of the Ming Empire from the 15th century onwards, and then for the Qing Empire from the 17th century onwards. And the moment that I choose to give you a flavor of that is a day in 1765, where we know roughly what the emperor of the time, the Qianlong emperor, was doing that day through all sorts of scholarly research that's been done. And I want to give you a sense of who this man was and how he viewed this vast collection of art that was under his control. The Qianlong emperor was sort of instrumental in building out and expanding the imperial art collections of China in the middle of the 18th century. And his taste and his view of the imperial collections has gone on since then to kind of influence everything that we think we know about the art of China. And his taste sort of decided what was seen as good taste in the art of China for a very long time. So his influence on the development of the imperial collections and Chinese art as a whole is immense. So I wanted to build out a sense of what these collections were through telling the story of this man. How far prior to his rule do the collections date back to? Oh, they go back a long, long way. They're not really a collection in the way that a European or or American collector would think of them. They're not there as a sort of single stable unit that is there to demonstrate wealth and taste and connoisseurship. The imperial art collections were much bigger than that. They were much more various than that. They had ritual uses. Many of the objects in the collections were used in ceremonies. Musical instruments were used in ritual. Porcelain was used uh, on altars at Buddhist ceremonies. Porcelain was used to eat off. It was functional in the workings of the imperial household. We're talking about thrones and armor and tapestries and paintings and calligraphy that demonstrated moral and aesthetic example. We're talking about bronzes that had inscriptions that had metaphysical and religious significance. So these things were not just the fine arts in the way that we in Europe or the United States would conceive of them. They were something much, much larger than that. And they go back through the different empires of China, what we often refer to as the dynasties of China, all the way back to the the Song a thousand years ago and before that to the Tang. And the collections have been kind of built on by emperors, then they've been carried off in war, then they've been reconstituted, then parts of them have been handed down. So they've sort of shrunken and expanded and changed over the centuries. But by the time we arrive at the beginning of the 20th century, 
you have an amalgam of about 1.17 million objects in the Forbidden City itself, most of which were collected by the Qianlong Emperor. By the time they got around to inventorying these collections, were there any stories or records of great works of art that had gone away from the collection in the interim? There's all sorts of catalogues that have been done over the centuries. There's a very famous one done back in the 13th century that gives a sense of what the imperial collections looked like at that time. And paintings would go into the collections and then leave the collections. You can tell a lot about what happens to a traditional Chinese painting from the seals that are affixed to it. So you're familiar with that, right? When you look at a Chinese painting, there's always a little blocky red stamp a little seal on it and the greater the painting the more seals there will be on it because collectors and emperors and dealers and important people when they viewed the painting wherever they were at any particular time they would affix their seal to it and some of these really famous paintings are just covered in dozens and dozens scores of these seals what these seals tell you is who owned a painting and where it was at a particular time. So you can trace some of these paintings in and out of different collections and sometimes in and out of the imperial collections too. And one of the paintings that I deal with in the book in Fragile Cargo, that was painted a thousand years ago, it's called Early Snow on the River by an artist named Zhao Gan. And you could tell from the seals when it went into imperial collections and when it passed out of them. So we have a very strong sense of the provenance of a lot of these paintings and what happened to them. Yeah. In the West, when we think of a seal, we almost think of like some melted wax and a signet ring that will seal an envelope closed. Now, was this more just like a stamp with just a, a flat representation, or was there any like 3D thing that was on the plane in itself? Yeah, so, so it's a little piece of stone, often soapstone, sometimes jade. On its base is carved very carefully a number of characters. Could be a name, it could be a pseudonym, it could be a sobriquet, it could be a phrase, it could be a design, but it's unique to the person who owns it. And it's then the characters on the bottom of the stone are dipped in a thick kind of clumpy red paste, a seal paste, which is made from um, cinnabar. And then that serves as, as a sort of ink and the seal is then affixed to the surface of the painting. And it gives this very striking, bright sort of clump of dense colour in the middle of a painting that draws your eye to it. And if a Chinese painting sort of doesn't have that red seal on it, it kind of looks a bit incomplete. And it's an important part of the identity of kind of intellectuals and artists throughout Chinese history, but particularly of aristocrats and of emperors. So emperors had their imperial seals, which were symbols of enormous power and authority. And when you see an imperial seal on a painting, that means that it was in the imperial collections. And that painting then takes on all sorts of extra meaning and significance. Now we fast forward to the 20th century, and we can't blame young Puyi for the failings of Qing rule up to that point. But what were those failings that led to the Republican movement and those who wanted to take power? So there's much debate about the closing years of the Qing Empire, the late 19th century, and what brought it down. Its encounter with colonialism, with the high days of imperialism, particularly with the British and the Japanese, were particularly bruising. They undermined the stability of the regime. There was a great deal of internal rebellion in the 19th century, one of the most vicious wars in human history, the Taiping War, was fought in the 1860s, around the same time as the American Civil War. 
that was a colossal undertaking. It cost tens of millions of lives. And it was a huge drain on the strength and authority and the vigor of the Qing Empire. People, different historians will attribute different reasons, different significance in, in, in their interpretations of the demise of the Qing. But by the end of the 19th century, the court is struggling to modernize. It is struggling to break out of tradition and the sort of structures and norms that have governed imperial rule for a millennium in China. It's struggling to industrialize. It's struggling to import new scientific knowledge that belatedly it's realized it desperately needs. It's looking over at Japan and the Meiji Restoration and Japan's incredible revival and industrialization in the 19th century. And it's sort of failing to get that modernization process on track. By the beginning of the 20th century, it's starting to collapse. And in 1911, the Qing armies begin to mutiny and the dynasty comes to its end. And the young, fragile Republic of China is founded the following year. Japan had adopted certain Western approaches to science and technology and manufacturing that started to give them this advantage. Were there any efforts in China to do the same that fell short, or what had they done in order to adapt to the modern age? Yeah, in the last two decades of the 19th century, there were considerable efforts to do just that. There were reform movements that are underway. And China at this time also was having a very complex kind of encounter with the colonialist countries. So there were treaties that had been imposed on China by Britain and France and other countries, Japan, Germany, that carved out chunks of Chinese territory. These were known as the foreign concessions. Those treaties were forced on China in the mid-19th century. By the end of the 20th century, those concessions were booming sort of mini economies. And they were taking off and there was manufacturing and there was investment and there were banks. And this was a real encounter for imperial China with modernity and with modern commerce. And commerce really began to take off in a big way throughout China, the China trade, as it became known throughout the 19th century, but particularly towards the end of the 19th century, was a huge booming business. So there was a lot going on, but it seems, I mean, depending on you know, how you read the history and who you ask, it seems to me that the imperial structures of empire were never able to keep up or adapt with commerce and, and the sort of engines of modernity that were turning in cities like Shanghai and Guangzhou. So yeah, there was plenty going on, yeah. But the inability to do so, was that just because of being hidebound or inefficiency or...? Corruption, inefficiency, hidebound, imperial court rivalries, lack of vision. I mean, preoccupation with these vast internal problems like rebellions, endless rebellions, the Boxer Uprising, the Nian Rebellion, the Small Sword Rebellion, the Taiping War, you know, endlessly trying just to hold everything together and a lack of vision and adaptability on the part of the imperial family and the ruling Manchu aristocracy. I think probably, I think most historians would say all that factored in, yeah. Now, who was the Christian general? So the Christian general was a man named Feng Yuxiang. He was a warlord. In the early years of the 20th century, China had very weak central politics. The republic was weak. It had very ineffectual, faction-riddled, quarreling central government. And China was kind of ruled by regional strongmen and regional warlords, 
who are often at each other's throats. So the 19-teens and 20s are a time of protracted small-scale warfare in China. And these generals were always quarreling and fighting, and double-crossing each other. They ran their own armies, their own private armies. Sometimes they had outside backing, too. The Soviet Union meddled in the warlord years. The Japanese meddled in the warlord years. Feng Yuxiang was a warlord. And in 1924, he, uh, in the middle of a civil war, he took Peking. He just took the city in what was in effect a a sort of coup d'etat against the central government. And for a little while, he ran the show in Peking. And he was the man, he was fervently anti-monarchist. He was a a modernizer himself. And he was the man who finally kicked out the remnants of the imperial court and the last emperor from the forbidden city in Peking. He sent his troops in in November 1924 and told Puyi, the last emperor of China, to get out and disappear. And he took over the imperial palaces. And everybody was terrified at the time in Peking that this warlord Feng Yuxiang, known as the Christian general, was going to steal the imperial collections and sell off this fantastically valuable art. In fact, he did the exact opposite. And he organized the inventory and cataloging of all the old imperial possessions, all the palaces, all the throne rooms, and all the art that was in there. And over the course of a year, these teams of academics and art historians went through these hundreds and hundreds of palaces in the Forbidden City, in these silent, dark, empty, echoing palaces, and counted and catalogued every every single object that was in there. And then, post-haste, they turned the Forbidden City from being an old imperial palace into a museum in 1925. And it became the central cultural institution of the young Republic of China. In their eyes, a museum to rival the Louvre in Paris or the British Museum in London. And that's the origin of the Palace Museum, which is still there in the Forbidden City in in, in Beijing today. Now, you mentioned we have these warlords in different areas of the country, of course, two major languages in the country and all the, the dialects. Was there a conception of Chinese identity at that point? Or was it to be Chinese as opposed to be from Sichuan or be from Hong Kong or whatever? Yeah. So again, that depends who you ask. There is, there's always been a strong strain in kind of Chinese tradition that argues that China is this kind of eternal civilization and that Chinese-ness has always been there. Some historians, very prominent Chinese historians among them, will argue that in fact, Chinese civilization never really had a very strong sense of shared history or shared identity. The historian Yu Yingshu argues very forcefully that it was only at the beginning of the 20th century that the idea of a shared nationality, of a shared sort of ethnicity and nationality of being Chinese, really came into being with the growth of a sense of shared nationhood. As China itself struggled to build itself into a republic, a modernizing republic, and it started to conceive of itself as a nation state for the first time rather than an empire. It was really only then that people from these very disparate bits of this huge chunk of territory that today we call China started identifying themselves as citizens of the same country with a shared identity and history. So before the 20th century, if you said to somebody, where are you from? They probably wouldn't have said, I'm from China. They would have said, I'm from such and such a clan in such and such a village in such and such a province, and I'm a subject of the Qing emperor. Only in the beginning of the 20th century, I think historians will tell you, people started saying, 
I'm a citizen of the Republic of China. And even though I speak a totally different language and I wear different clothes and eat different food to that guy over there, we are still citizens of, of the same shared country. Yeah. Back to the Forbidden City, you know, just that name is so evocative. But obviously there were people that lived there and worked there and had business there. Who all was allowed access? So in the middle of Peking, you have the larger imperial city, the vast imperial precincts. That's when, when you look at an image of Tiananmen Gate, that's what you're looking at, the outer imperial wall. Then within there, you had the whole machinery of imperial government, all the ministries, and you had bureaucrats, and you had you know, dormitories and places for these people to live. And, and then inside the imperial city, you had the inner sanctum that was the Zijiancheng, the, the forbidden city. And the reason it was called forbidden was you were not allowed in there unless you were on part of the imperial family, the ruling family, or you were part of the Isengyoro clan, or you were part of their immediate household, or their closest officials, or their servants. So only the imperial household had the freedom to live and move inside the Forbidden City. Officials would come in and out, escorted in to do their imperial business with the emperor, but only the imperial household lived inside the Forbidden City. So it had this this sense of hiddenness and of secrecy that was very tied up with the imperial mystique. And the sense of hiddenness and secrecy covered the emperor and his family themselves. The ordinary people of, of the empire never got to see the emperor. And it also extended to the imperial art collections. They were secret. They were never seen by the people of the empire. So when those art historians and curators went into the palaces for the first time in 1924 and began cataloging, they were seeing much of this art for the very first time. They didn't know what was in there and they were seeing much of this stuff for the very first time. They might have known of the existence of certain paintings and certain objects, but they never actually clapped eyes on them themselves. So yes, this extraordinary mystique and this, this name, the Forbidden City, has its roots in that sense of of hiddenness that always surrounded the emperor of China. How were the students, faculty, and staff of Peking University selected to be the ones in charge of this inventory? So they had to find people that they could trust to go into the Forbidden City in 1924 to do the cataloging and the inventory. A lot of art was getting stolen at this point. A lot of it was getting sold off by the imperial household. A lot of it was getting smuggled out. The emperor himself, the last emperor himself, Pu Yi, smuggled out a load of stuff as financial security. The palaces would mortgage off large quantities of very valuable art to banks in return for loans to keep the household running. And so the first thing they had to make sure of was that this art was not going to get stolen. So they selected art historians and professors and graduate students from Peking University, China's first modern university founded in 1898. And they decided, with the help of some officials and policemen, that these were the guys that could, the only people that could be trusted to go into the palaces and do the inventory. And in the book, I tell you the stories of some of these people and sort of who they are and their background. These were intellectuals of the early 20th century, and they were themselves engaged in this extraordinary process of trying to kind of remake ideas of Chinese nationality and citizenship and trying to reshape a kind of intellectual world of China in the early 20th century. So it was a hugely exciting time for them. And they got to go into these palaces and look at all this art and figure out what was in these palaces for the first time ever. We say Peking University, that's the older name for 
what we know as Beijing nowadays. What was the difficulty in looking at records and translations from the time where Romanization, the transliteration of Chinese into Roman alphabet, changed over the years? How difficult was that to maintain kind of a sense of continuity in all your research? Oh, it's a nightmare. <laughs> this is completely impossible. And whoever you ask will tell you that there's a different way of Romanizing. Their way is the better way, and we should all do it this way and that way. I was never going to achieve consistency uh, in this. So some names I Romanize in old-fashioned Romanizations. Other names I have Romanized using the system that was mostly in use today, which is called Pinyin Romanization, is a product of the People's Republic of China, of Communist China. So I have just kind of gone with catch as catch can. And I decided to use the name Peking to talk about this city up until the 1950s, up until the beginning of the People's Republic of China, when I switched to Beijing. And the reason I chose to do that was because it saved a lot of distraction and explanation in complicated name changes over the years. And it was also the name that many Chinese people, when they were speaking English, that was the word that they used at the time. So I think it fits reasonably well. I don't think it's a problem. Other people will disagree with me, however, but I'm, but I'm sticking to it. <laughs> in another interview I had, they said that Chinese people would often change their names several times during the course of their life, kind of yeah. to be indicative of kind of their personality or their circumstances. Indeed. And that also is very difficult to follow. I've had to make a decision. And in English, I look for the easiest way for the reader to move forward. If you're going to start changing the names of people every time they change their own name, and Chinese people at the time would have a birth name, they'd be given a different name as they grew up, then they'd have a courtesy name, which they would use in certain circumstances, then they would have names that sobriquets that they would write under so it gets enormously complicated. And part of the fodder of being a Chinese intellectual a kind of historian in China or, or you know, the, the guys who do this for a living have to devote enormous amounts of time just to figure out who is who over the years because people's names are changing so much. And oftentimes in my research, when I was reading, for example, the diaries of people involved in this whole story, they would be alluding to other people by different names that I'd never even seen before. So I was getting into real trouble and getting very tangled up trying to figure out who was who. In the book, I have just chosen one name for each person and stuck with it. And that's the only way that I think you can fairly do it for the general reader. Otherwise, it's just going to become impossible for anybody to stay oriented. And one of the big problems I think that we have in the sort of Anglophone world, when we read about China, is people are incredibly intimidated by the Romanizations and by the names. And people find it very difficult to stay oriented and to figure out where they are and who they're reading about and what place they're reading about. So I've tried in the book to make that as plain and as easy as possible so that you can stay oriented and know where you are. That was a big preoccupation for me. Now, in the Pinyin Romanization, did they pick a specific language that they were aiming for? Because the Roman alphabet has so many different pronunciations and accents all over Western Europe, because a lot of them don't seem to make sense to American English speakers on why would a Q sound like a CH sound and such. Yeah, I know. It's, it's uh, Personally, my own personal opinion is that Pinyin Romanization is very difficult. Uh, it lo looks very ugly on the page, and to the English language reader, it doesn't make a lot of visual sense. My understanding, and I don't understand the origins of Pinyin very well, but my understanding is that it grew up in the mid-20th century 
and that linguists in China were looking for new ways of romanizing the Chinese language, and they relied on Soviet assistance here. So, so at least some of those formulations, like the ZH that you see so commonly in pinyin to indicate a kind of retroflex sound, j, j, it comes from the Soviet ZH. And it's not very helpful. And why indeed does a Q sound like a kind of dental CH? Uh, why doesn't X sound like a, an aspirated palatal sound? Why, why use an X for that? I, you know, I don't get it. So it's not easy looking at pinyin to figure out what the sound should be. You have to actually learn pinyin in order to understand how to pronounce it. It's not intuitive at all, in my view. Early on in the inventory, when you write about it, you contrast the feelings about the task between a couple of young students, Zhuang Yan and Na Liang. Yeah, that's right. So Zhuang Yan was a young archaeologist from Peking University, and he, he was already quite a well-qualified, educated young man. And he went into the palaces in 1924 and was just absolutely enormously excited about the task in front of him. He writes in his memoir about how freezing cold it was and how dark it was and how difficult and monumental this task appeared. But because they were the first people into these palaces, they were the first people really to see the inner workings of the imperial court and the art collections therein. And he wrote in his memoir that it was that joy, that excitement, that incredible sense of learning that drove them all on. Nadra Liang, by contrast, was an 18-year-old high school graduate with good handwriting, and he was kind of appended onto one of these teams to take notes effectively. And he wasn't a university graduate and he didn't really know what he was looking at. He didn't really appreciate the scale of the, of the task. And he was just absolutely miserable <laughs> throughout the process. And his feet are cold and he can't write and his hands are frozen and he's miserable and upset throughout. And so you have these wonderful contrasts between these different personalities uh, who were involved in the inventory process. It's lovely details like this taken from the memoir that sort of bring the whole thing alive. You know, once you get people's stories and people's point of view, it starts to bring these rather distant stories to life. Now, the person that comes closest to being the protagonist of this tale is Ma Hung. And he did not have a typical upbringing in China, did he? So Ma Hung, born in 1881 to a, a family. His father was a Qing imperial official. So he grew up with some sort of social status. And he got a good education and he was a very precocious student of traditional Chinese learning. So he was very good at his classical Chinese and he cut and collected seals and inscriptions from a young age. But then he married into a very, very wealthy family in Shanghai in the foreign concessions in 1902. He became a very wealthy businessman. But throughout his life as a wealthy businessman, he carried on his scholarship and his collecting as well. And then he changed his life. In 1917, he decided he would become a scholar after all. So he moves to Peking and he joins Peking University. And he becomes a big figure in the foundational moments of Chinese 20th century archaeology. He sets up one of the first institutes of archaeology, modern archaeology in China. And then he joins the inventory teams that go into the palaces in 1924. And he goes on to help found the Palace Museum. And then he becomes director of the Palace Museum in the early 1930s. So the whole story that spools out from here 
the packing of the imperial collections, the evacuation of, of the collections from Peking, and this time into the Second World War. He's really the man in charge, and it's his organization, Ma Hung's organizational capability and his vision that sets us off on this extraordinary story. And there was this extreme sense of duty and responsibility in this. And they were very conscious of the possibility of being accused of stealing from this collection. So Mm -hmm. what links did they go to in order to kind of quash any idea of a sense of impropriety of anything going on? The first director of the Palace Museum there in the Forbidden City in the late 1920s was a man named Yipei Ji. And he was accused of impropriety and even of stealing from the collections. And he was hounded out of office, humiliated and died a broken man a few years later. Our guy, Ma Hung, took over from him in the early 1930s and moved very, very quickly to kind of secure his position and to make himself appear above suspicion by ordering an entirely new inventory of all the imperial collections under his charge, with witnessed by numerous people, double signed, double stamped, double book entry keeping, you name it. He wasn't about to let himself go the same way. So there's a lot of politics in this whole story. And public life in the Republic of China at this time was a treacherous place to be. We're talking a highly unstable government in a country still riven with factions and division. It's it's trying to manage a communist insurrection at the same time through the 1920s and the 1930s. You've got Japan coming in from the east, gobbling up bits of territory. You know, you've got huge corrupt interests at work, drug trafficking, you name it. China is riven with these deeply intractable problems. And just being in public life is sort of putting a target on your back. So Ma Hung was very politically aware of the fragility of his own position. Atop the most important cultural institution in the country, with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of art under his charge, under his protection. He moved aggressively to kind of secure his position and try and make himself as in vulnerable as possible. But he was always at risk. And my sense is that he always felt vulnerable and he always felt extremely stressed by the life that he had chosen by becoming a servant of politics and the government and managing this enormous cultural institution rather than the quiet life of scholarship that he kind of craved and had given up. And he does seem to be a poster child for the old saw of no good deed goes unpunished. I mean, Ma Hung oversaw the packing of the imperial collections in the early 1930s. 20,000 cases, wooden cases, containing about quarter of a million objects and texts that were then evacuated from Peking in 1933 and began this extraordinary journey for 16 years all over China, first down to Nanjing, Shanghai, then the whole way west across the center of China, to the far west of China, fleeing the advancing Japanese army all through this landscape of total war that was China's World War II. Rather than being the scholar and curator and art historian that he dreamed of being, Ma Hung and all his curators became wartime logisticians. They had an impossible task moving 20,000 cases full of this incredibly valuable, fragile, irreplaceable art through appalling conditions, through Japanese bombing, 
through famine, up rivers, over mountain ranges, on the backs of trucks, on steamships, on railway cars, sometimes on bamboo rafts being hauled up rivers in Western China. These cases stacked literally on bamboo rafts with, with boatmen poling these rafts up river using bamboo poles. And Ma Hung was in charge of this operation. And if any of it had gone wrong, he would have been blamed. It would have been his fault. So he spent 16 years doing this. And for 16 years, his life was sort of teetering on the edge of disaster every day. But due to his extreme fastidiousness, his care, and the professionalism of the curators around him, they somehow managed again and again and again to avoid disaster. But it was not a life that he sought for himself. And I think it was psychologically and emotionally incredibly taxing on him. Yeah. Well, Adam, we've talked a bit and there is so much more to talk about in this book. Would you mind coming back next time and discussing Fragile Cargo a little bit more? I would be very happy to. Thank you so much. Thank you. Adam Brooks is the author of Fragile Cargo, the World War II race to save the treasures of China's Forbidden City, which is published by Atria. Please come back next time for the second part of our interview. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.